LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. Sanders. I'm Derek Hanna. Welcome to The One Thing, a podcast designed to give you one solid practical tip for gospel Center ministry every week. And it's 2020. It is 2020. Just had Australia Day. We d- yeah, I just reflected on, I mean, we had a big year last year. We did a lot of traveling and we're not doing a lot of traveling together this year. So I'm missing that. Mm. Is that okay to say out loud that I'm missing traveling with you, Derek? No, I, I find that lovely. You know, that's what yep. friends do. Yep. That's what friends do. What, they what like friends, to travel. They, they, they like to I, travel together. Yep. Now, the one thing is brought to you with thanks to Geneva Push, the Australian Church Planning Network. Sorry for being a little bit passive-aggressive. We're also proudly part of the LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. And uh, we'd encourage you to check out our network page on iTunes. And you can see a whole bunch of quality, non-passive-aggressive Christian podcasts. But for now, you press play on episode number 93 of The One Thing, Church on the Edge of Australia. Now, as I said in our intro, last year we did do a lot of travelling together. One of the trips that I enjoyed lots was down to Tassie. And we caught up with a, an old mate of ours from college, Al Bain. Mm. He's the Prezi Minister at, at one of the oldest churches in Tasmania, uh, St. John's Presbyterian Church. And uh, we had a great time talking about uh, particularly taking the gospel to the city of Hobart, which is an interesting city. You know, whiskey distilleries, you know, former penal col- colony. Uh, it houses the Mona, um, pretty much an art institution that's been set up really to push the edges. Uh, and so it was a fascinating conversation with him about leading a church in this context. This is Al Bain. He's the senior minister at St. John's Presbyterian in Hobart. You've been down here for 12 years, Al? No, I haven't. Uh, this is my ninth year. So uh, by the end of next year, I've been here 10 years. Okay. Before that, I was a, I was a, a lawyer in Launceston. A criminal lawyer? Criminal, yeah, criminal defence lawyer. Um, there is a difference. And... Um, and uh, yeah, but you know, it's a bit like being a GP in a small town. You end up having to do a few things. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I mainly do criminal law, but family, wound up a few companies, made a few people bankrupt, uh, acted for the council and had a few dogs put down who were harassing sheep and goats and chickens. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it is like a country practice, but the legal version. Anyway, then I went off to SMBC where you two blokes were just finishing up. Uh, when I arrived. Senior students. Sen- yes. <laughs> How was that experience as us as senior <laughs> students at uh, college? That was a very, it was a very helpful one, actually. Thank you. Yeah, I found you two uh, to be um, yeah, interesting characters to have around the, the campus. So we, we, did, uh, we did your second year together and our third year mm. together. Mm. So at SMBC, the, B, the BTH, the MDivers, all sort of gathered together in the one, in the one sort of melting pot. So mm. it was interesting. Mm. They were the golden years, uh, 2000, the mid-2000s when we were there, oh, I like to think, I've been told. Yeah. I've been told that as well. Big yeah. shout out to Pete Ritchie, who Pete was Ritchie. the golden boy in the golden years. Yeah, he was, I always I thought remember. Tim Silverman was the golden Tim boy. Tim Silverman was He well. was always the golden boy, come on. Yeah, well, Pete's always been my golden boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, none of this is going to get recorded. All right, so talk us a little bit about St John's. It's 175 years yeah. old, then, isn't it? Yeah, so, so uh, April 1843, they opened the doors here for the first time uh, to the city of Hobart. About 10,000 people living here. Uh, I think probably at that time, five less than 5% would say that they weren't Christian. Mm. And yet the doors of our church opened out onto a street that... Uh, was filled with people coming in and out of pubs, brothels, 
there, were, there was more alcohol being drunk here in the 1840s per head than there ever has been in any of the 1900s. Uh, it was a city just really swimming in vice. And so 175 years on, in many ways, Hobart hasn't changed a great deal. Um, better coffee now. Better coffee. The, there's still a pub next door here, right next to us. Uh, I don't know where the brothels are. And, uh, and you know, it's, uh, it looks similar, except that rather than 95% of people identifying as being God believers, the recent census would say that we are amongst the lowest. We have the lowest percentage of believers in God in the, in the 18 to 35-year-old bracket of any capital city in Australia, of Australian-born people. So, yeah, we're, we're a pretty, pretty godless city in that sense. So, so what other signs? I mean, digging into, you've, you've just talked about the sort of ABS census stats. Uh, what, it, what else kind of tells you as a local minister that this place doesn't welcome Christianity or welcome Jesus? Well, it's a very... Um, or religion uh, just generally. Yeah, yeah. Re- religion generally. Uh, it's um, just over the last few years, Hobart in one sense has really exploded because of the building of the Museum of Old and New Art, Mona, which is a huge multi-million dollar museum in, in the northern suburbs owned by David Walsh, who is a, a billionaire gambler. And he has built this thing which he describes as his Disneyland, which is an ode to sex and death. So you go out there and uh, you're confronted with all this amazing art, really, but it's, 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 it's talking about a narrative of reproduction and death, and he says that's life. Now, that has attracted hundreds and thousands of people to the city of Hobart, and some of them have stayed and they've set up new industry, and, uh, and we're now very much under the influence of that uh, museum and... Uh, in, in some sense, it means that we're booming, actually. There are, there are hotels being built all around us. Hobart has become a bit of a hipster centre for Australia. I've met people walking down the street who've come from Europe just to see the museum. So in that way, um, yeah, he's, he is a full-blown atheist and uh, makes no secret of that. And it made, it made the news a few years ago, if I remember, the, uh, the installation of the cross upside down... Was there more to it? Is that, I remember reading an article yeah. on it, but um... yeah. So in the middle of winter, um, in the middle of winter, there's a Hobart has a festival called Dark Mofo, and uh, it is it is really it, it's really a a celebration of darkness and and licentiousness, and it taps into pagan roots and myth, and yeah, the 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 red crosses being turned upside down and displayed all along our waterfront were a provocative artistic installation, mm. really saying something about uh, the city and the count. The Hobart City Council got right behind it and 20,000, 30,000 people arrived from the mainland over the period of, of a weekend and a bit longer to sort of have this bacchanalian revelry in, in drugs and alcohol and sex and, and pagan ritual. And it ends with a, uh, something called an Ogo Ogo, which is a, a Balinese, a huge Balinese wooden statue that is burnt. And during the week leading up to the burning of this statue, the children, uh, in fact, adults and children of Hobart are invited to write their fears on a piece of paper to put it into the Ogo Ogo, and it is burnt at the end of this festival, and those fears are taken up in smoke to the gods. Mm. 
Now, this is Hobart 2019. Mm. So this is another... And, and, and when, when that's happening, there are 5,000 Hobartians standing around watching, watching in the yeah, darkness wow. as this goes on. So this is the city I'm in. Mm. Now, now, the courts as well, there was that you know, famous discrimination case, uh, I think, or no, hate speech case just before the same-sex marriage debate where the Catholic minister for his pamphlet was, you know, brought to court for discrimination, I, th- I think it was. I and think, that was, that was then was thrown out. Yeah, well, it wasn't thrown out. It was withdrawn. It was never tested. Mm. So we don't know, in fact, whether the anti-discrimination legislation of Tasmania would have found him to have contravened the law or not. Yeah, they brought an action mm. against him, but people are bringing actions against innocent people all the time in in the court. So I, I've never really got to carry... I mean, it was a pretty awful experience for the guy, but mm. the courts may have come down on his side. We'll never know because the, mm. the, the complainant withdrew the case. Well, the one thing is part of the Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. And this is a good chance to point you to one of our partner podcasts. Have you listened to New Church's Q&A podcast with Daniel Lehman, Ed Stetzer and Todd Adkins? Uh, as part of the Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network family, they've recently covered topics like how to make your leadership pipeline relational, how to attract and engage new people, and growing your congregation deeper. Just look up New Churches, two words, on your favourite podcasting app and check it out. Now back to today's episode. So with, with Hobart being so secular, and mm. yet this strange mix of spirituality mm. you've described as well, what are the... What are the, how does that change your ministry? What, well, it makes it a really interesting place to live for a start. And um, it, it, look, in one sense, it doesn't change my ministry at all because I've been set aside to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I think it is a wonderfully malleable message that can fit into the cracks of all sorts of beliefs mm. and understandings and actually cover many, bridge the gaps in people's lives that, uh, that are there because of a sense of hopelessness and a sense of frustration and disappointment. So in one sense, it doesn't change much at all. In another sense, it's, it, it, in order for me to understand the people that I am interacting with and preaching to, it does mean that I need to listen a lot to the people around me. And so I spend a lot of my time with non-Christians. Some of my best friends are non-Christians. My kids go to the local school in West Hobart. We are, Hobart is, is a very left city very green city mm. um, and, and and so I spend a lot of time listening in on, on, on people as, as they talk about their hopes and dreams and aspirations and fears and and I'm curious about that I want to know what they're thinking and I want to know what forms they're thinking and then I if I'm given an opportunity I might uh, speak into the space that they've created and and talk about a different kind of hope in, in fact an enduring eternal hope um, which uh, most of the people I speak to um, have never really thought about. Have so never... is, there, is there an openness or is there a closeness? I, I find that there's an openness. Now, that might just be because of, because of the way that I am with people. Yep. I, I think secularism, when, when understood properly, is not a rejection of Christianity. It is, it is an idea in a culture which says Christianity is one of many choices. It's, mm. com- it's contestable. And so if it's contestable, I want to say it's possible, it's feasible. It's one of many ideas. Now, okay, not many people go for it or like it um but i i have found that yeah i have i have conversation gospel conversations with non-christians frequently so in terms of your your ministry training you know we talked briefly about the fact you went to smbc mm. what are you finding yourself dipping into regularly to sort of 
you know, bolster your yeah. your word ministry that you, you got it. I, I, well, SMBC was a wonderful college and I met some terrific people there. I feel as though I didn't really learn. I felt like I could have, it would have been helpful for me to have done some sort of anthropology mm. or philosophy. I didn't get any of that at SMBC. Understanding humanity, how people think. And so people say to you, what, oh, you're a leader of a church. What, what are you reading to help you with the leadership? And I say, well, I, I, I read mainly novels. I think leadership is about understanding people. Mm. And so I read excellent novels because I want to and, and go watch films and read biographies and listen to music. I want to understand people better. I want to understand what their yearnings and their, and their fears and their hopes are. I want to find out what their hopes for their kids are, what they're putting their they're putting their trust in for the future so yeah I, I i find a wonderful openness and the way i'm a really curious person i just i just like people so so cookie had that phrase where he sort of you know you want to spend 50 percent of your time in the word of god and the other 50 percent in the herald or the daily telegraph yeah. you know he had that sort of peculiar yeah. thing at, at ministry or at uh, principles hour yes where he'd, he'd read a snapshot from column eight or from yeah. the newspaper, you know, is the newspaper not you know not enough? You know, do, well, he do only I have read, to read more than the Telegraph. Well, he only read the Sydney Morning Herald, I think. So I read the Guardian as well, but I'd never admit that to him. It's just Alan Jones. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I think we need to do more than that. And I think um, I think I think there's some really wonderful storytellers. You know, you watch Mad Men. I, I watched a series and a half of Mad Men on Netflix, and I'm I'm able to I'm able to to, to go to some pretty dark places. Mm. But I found that after watching a season and a half of Mad Men with my wife, that was even too much for me. There wasn't a single person in that mm. series who was not broken and looking for something to fix them with. Yeah. And it was just complete hopelessness. And yet, Mad Men is being described as perhaps the best series of all time. How could it be that something about brokenness and misery could actually be considered the best series of all time? Maybe because deep down, everyone can relate to it. There's a brokenness in people. Mm. Go along and watch Manchester by the Sea. Here's a guy who suffered terrible trauma in his past that we don't know what's happened. It's meant that he's not able to relate to people in the future. Uncovering that trauma, finding out what's going on. See, and again, Academy Award winner about a really tragic story. Why? I think we can relate to that. Just finished reading a beautiful novel called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, which is the story of a woman in Glasgow who is lonely and she is in a massive bubbling city and yet she goes home on Friday from work and then she doesn't speak to a single person until she goes back to work on Monday and it's this beautiful story about her finding someone who was kind to her and how he helped to open her up to the world around her and the author of that book says she wrote that story because she read one day in the paper in Glasgow about a person who'd left work on Friday and didn't speak to a single person until the following Monday and they were lonely. Mm. Now, that's what secularism leads us to, I think. We buffer ourselves away from the idea of anything transcendent or divine and we, we become, we, we silo ourselves down in our little lives and we let nobody in and perhaps we ought not be surprised that in the UK they now have got a minister for loneliness and they're talking about the same so, thing in Victoria. So you talk about listening well, being curious, mm. but, but how is it that you get to, you know, because people are very private, uh, you know, mm. we're even more, I think we're even more private these days, you know, mm. that, that story is a great example of someone mm. not even reaching out to, mm. to a fellow co-workers to, to, to say, hey, are you doing, you know, I'm, I've got no one to catch up with on the weekend. But uh, how do you encourage your church to be seeking those conversations? How do you do that as a, 
Well, as, as a, I guess as a preacher, I'm, I try to model vulnerability in my preaching. Mm. And so if ever I use myself as an example in a sermon, it's always, I'm always the butt of my own joke. Mm. Or I'm always explaining a weakness or a failing of my own within reason. Um, and I think, uh, I think that's, I think I'm trying to model that to, to the people around me. I tell lots of stories in sermons about uh, brokenness. And I think, I think our, I think our art, the artists of today are wonderful at diagnosing the problem. They just don't have any way of prescribing the solution. Yeah. And so I'm constantly, I'm constantly quoting, whether it be Nick Cave or Paul Kelly or Tim Friedman or, 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 a, or a movie as they, as they open up and diagnose the human problem in the most profound and wonderful way, but they just leave it there and I am able to show, I hope, the way in which the gospel of the Lord Jesus not only understands that problem, but is able to meet and heal that problem. So I think one of the challenges with preachers as well, biblically, we are speakers. Mm. But what you're describing there is the pointy end is the preaching, but behind that sits a massive volume of understanding and digging into the psyche of the people that we're talking about. And just the, the lived experiences, in order that when we speak... We actually speak into their experience. Yeah, and so we live in a culture which says there is no right and wrong. There is my own personal happiness, and no, and I am going to buffer myself away from anybody else. I live uh, according to my own values, and that's that's something that that we hold very very dear to ourselves. But what happened when Steve Smith came back from South Africa and was there at the Sydney um, airport? in that really terribly sad moment where he's mm. crying with his father standing next to him with his arm on him. And there's Steve Smith saying, I'm really sorry. I hope that I can earn back the trust of the Australian people and that one day they'll come to forgive me. Now, why would someone speak like that if they live in a culture where there is no right and wrong and where you are the arbiter of your own truth? Mm. Mm. I just don't think, I think that what, what our culture says and then what our culture instinctively feels are two very different things. And so there's a moment. Mm. There's a moment in Australian history where you've got Steve Smith using the language of Old Testament temple worship of forgiveness and redemption and earning back um, a place in the kingdom, which is the Australian uh, psyche. Even that moment you described before in Hobart of them putting their fears into the fire to be but wouldn't that be great if somehow we could offload our guilt and our shame onto something else in order for it to disappear? Wouldn't it be? Moments. Yeah, yeah. and I think so. I can't help but because of my natural curiosity, I can't help but open the paper or see a movie or listen to a song, and everywhere I look, there are these there's a hauntedness. Yeah, we okay. Let's get rid of God, but can we can we really live as though He's not there? Can we really live without hope in there being eternity? I don't think we can. And here are these clues all around us, and I wanna I wanna tap into those clues and and reveal them. That's great. We, you've uh, you've already mentioned some of these things. Just for, as a toolbox, just a special thing today. You've given us some things that you have uh, listened to and read, and a website. Mm. Um, what have you got for us? Well, uh, I am trying to read Charles Taylor, A Secular Age, but I'm finding it incredibly. You're finding difficult. it hard, aren't you? Everyone finds it hard. It, just no one wants to talk about it. I think it. he needed an editor. <laughs> it did. It does not need to be that long. And the people who say they enjoyed it. 
I think they I think they think you want them to think they enjoy. So is there a website with a cheat sheet? Well, I, there's a little website that I've found called theimminentframe.com, uh, I think, which has got some helpful articles on it. James K.A. Smith, who I don't think is a very easy writer to read either, but is actually quite easy to read. He's written, in comparison to Taylor, he's written a little book on uh, how to understand Charles Taylor. So that's quite helpful as well. Um, but honestly, I think... Um, I think just observing, listening, seeing the narratives, the texts are all around us of, of, the, of, the, of where uh, people these days are, uh, are seeking redemption, looking for hope, mm. wanting to know peace. Um, you know, the very fact that we've, that we've tried to expel the transcendent and the divine and yet our generation is growing up at the moment seeking thrills, some of which are very dangerous. Uh, skin orgasms is what they're now being referred to. Frisson is how Charles Taylor refers to it. This, this, they, want, they want an out-of-body experience mm. in order to feel more alive. And I just wonder if that's a little key, that there's something lacking in them having got rid of the transcendent divine element of their existence. So what can we expect moving forward? What do you think society is... What opportunities are there? What would we expect? I think for those who are on the lookout, opportunities abound. Mm. And human... I mean, if, if as, the, as, as the writer says, eternity has been sown in the heart of man, we mm. ought not be surprised that we're having this conversation. And uh, that's going to be something that exists in the heart of man uh, forever. And I think, you know, I, I think opportunities are a plenty. And I, I love ministering in Hobart. I love working down here with, with my congregation and with the people I love, my friends, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, I keep listening, and then, and I guess I'm looking out for, there's, there's just part of me, there's a sense of me always listening out for that little moment of gold where, where I can, where I've got a way into a person's life and an understanding of their longings and fears that I know that only Jesus can cure for them. Well, Al, thanks uh, for being on The One Thing. Can you just uh, give us, what's your one thing for ministering in the secular city? Listen. Listen to people around you um, and listen without trying to correct. Understand what's going on and then go away and think about whether or not that's... Uh, whether or not you can, you can speak into that with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Brilliant. Al, thanks for joining us on The One Thing. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The One Thing. Coming up in our next episode... You probably know that thinking about planning a new church congregation opens up a whole host of questions. Often we think about church planning in one particular way, one particular style. But look, we're going to uh, do something a little bit different. Next week, we're going to start a six-part series on every type of church planning scenario. All the key shapes it can take, so you can pick the one that is right for you and your context. I'm looking forward to hearing from a whole bunch of church planners from around the country and also really digging into this topic with you, Derek. Well, until then, I'm Derek Hanna. And I'm Scott Sanders. Chat soon. Oh, 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 oh,